Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon-Jarvis, and I am incredibly lucky to be sitting down with my friend, Christine Tate. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I just want to tell the audience, because I feel like they have a right to know, that I stalked you online and in person, and then kind of manipulated you into giving me your phone number by taking a picture <laughs> with you and then was like, oh, I'll text you. And it worked. And now we are friends and people who support each other in writing and in life. Um, so I absolutely advocate that strategy for other people. Stalking can work. It can win you. Friends. It's a, it, it's a great strategy. And I'm so glad I had a few people approach me that way because I'm so afraid of being intrusive that I really need stalkers to be in my life. Otherwise nothing's going to happen because I'm so scared to initiate. So it works perfectly. Well, I read your first book group, I think in one sitting, <laughs> and, which shouldn't surprise people, right? I'm a therapist, but it, but, um, there's something about, and you and I've talked about this before, like the very first scene of that book is so gripping. Um, there's something about being able to admire someone and learn about sort of the struggles and the way that they have put their life together. That feels like one of those things that writers give us as a gift that probably we don't deserve. So I, I, again, asked you to be on the podcast as a long con to get an early uh, book and it worked. So I got to read BFF and I would love to talk about that. The The question I always ask guests when they start is how do you come into the world of grief and loss? And I'm particularly interested in that with this new incredible book you just are about to put out in the world. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again and for stalking me and doing a long con. What comes to mind really my oldest griefs, the griefs that have been the most longstanding in my life have been friendship griefs because before I ever experienced a grandparent loss or the other griefs that we accumulate through being um, human on the earth, I was grieving not being in the right kinds of friendships, losing friendships um, and feeling wrong in the world. And that really, really mattered first and foremost in the context of friendship. And the book is really about the loss of a, a loss of lots of friends and my lack of skills, which led to loss. But also someone came into my life, a friend who I didn't recognize at first because I had such a narrow definition of friend. But this woman, Meredith, sort of tapped me on the shoulder and was like, let's let's both work on friendships together because I think we might both suck at it. And she was right. And in the course of our friendship, she actually ended up getting sick and passing away. And so that's all through the book. And I just think talking about grief and friendship is probably something I'm going to do for the rest of my life because it's it's so big. It's so huge. I could I could write other books about it. I'll probably just stick with this one. But <laughs> I started with BFF and am looking forward to having conversations about it. It's such a slow burn, the book. And I mean that like in the highest compliment is like, you don't, you're like, oh, well, yeah, you know, she's just talking about childhood friendship. Like childhood friendship is hard. But what I've come to understand and really like you lay out plainly in the book is that it kind of never changes. The dynamic might change from I am yearning to be connected to them to they are yearning to be connected to me. But it's such a Goldilocks situation at all times, right? We're trying to find the sweet spot. And a minute ago, you just said, you know, something about your skill level and one thing that I've been really struck by, because I'm 48, is like, I don't know that my skill level is a whole lot higher. My intent and my integrity is different. Yeah. Right? But the like way that I felt as a kid, quickly excluded, yes, um, you know, jealous, and like those feelings have never really gone away just my ability to attend to them and probably to speak to them is better. Yeah. But, but not better enough that I don't still have all kinds of carnage across friendships. I'm actually really happy to hear you say that because that is totally my experience. I'm still 
rather routinely dogged by envy and jealousy and petty heartedness. And I fall on my face all the time. So when I ask myself, well, what's different? One is that I've accepted that friendship intimacy is as messy as any other kind. Hello, I did not think that was the case because it looks so shiny from the outside. It looks like everyone's just going to Cancun every year and then their kids grow up together and these groups of women just, they effortlessly flow together and are bonded for life. And I have not had that experience and the mess is is kind of a continual surprise. Um, It's good news and bad news, right? But I definitely feel like what's different is I'm invested. I'm willing to look at the mess. I'm willing to step into it and acknowledge it. And the people who I have gathered as my intimates and my friends are also have a high tolerance for mess <laughs> of their own and mine. And just an acceptance of what, what friendship is as any relationship that requires tending and like a delicate balance sometimes of tending and space and none of it is just effortless. Like I haven't found the thing that's supposed to be effortless. Like I thought marriage would be effortless, wrong, motherhood, wrong, (laughs) friendship, wrong. So effortlessness is kind of maybe just like an ideal that's not really applicable to my life. I think there's also this ethos around, like we know because people talk about fighting in marriage is healthy. You're never not going to, right? And so if you've partnered up and you're having discord in marriage, there's a wide berth of like discussion that you can have with friends over coffee or turn on a podcast and hear people talking about it. It's much more difficult to find the space where you can talk about the conflict that you're having with a friend. Because what I experience with other friends And maybe this isn't true in sobriety rooms where I think people hold you more accountable. But what I experience with other friends is they're like, well, the fuck that person just ghost them. Don't talk to them anymore. And I have this hangover from early days in therapy of wanting to be the best person in therapy and wanting to do the best. And I was never really a perfectionist till I hit therapy and was like, I love this more than anything. And I want this to help transform all the things And so if there was a way that seemed like this is the way with the most integrity and this is the way with the most connection and this, it felt like I had to do it. Yeah. And what's challenging, I had somebody say this to me the other day, what's the difference between putting a boundary, a healthy boundary in a relationship and putting up a wall and how do you know the difference? Yeah, I struggle with that. And even backing up, I've had such a struggle to believe that I deserve boundaries. You know, it took me years to figure out what I wanted. Okay, good. This is what I want. But then I had to ask for it. That was another couple of years. And now when I need to set a boundary with a friend, I still feel afraid. I get a stomachache. I don't want to. I want to sidestep it. Maybe I could just swallow my desire because I'm so afraid. And some many, many times it doesn't even lead to conflict. It's just like, oh, that's what you want. Okay. Um, And sometimes it's trickier than that. Of course, like my needs are sometimes in conflict with my friend's needs and I don't like that. And it's a real part of the fabric of my daily life, but I definitely feel like the wall boundary question is, is super relevant because Sometimes I'm like, do I really need this boundary? Is this boundary? Did I overdraw the boundary? Like I'm an overthinker. So I can talk myself into any variation (laughs) that I'm wrong, however I did it. So that can be a problem. I have to make those decisions in communication with the people I'm drawing boundaries and possibly building walls with because I can't figure it out on my own. Yeah. And what I really don't like is when my good intentions hurt someone else. Yes. I want them to be punished for being hurt by my good intentions. It is a real struggle for me not to be defined by the fact that I hurt them. I don't know that I've ever gone out of my way since I was little to hurt someone, but I definitely in my adult life have done things that I have known would hurt someone and just, it wasn't at them. I just knew that it would hurt them. And, um, and similarly, and you talk about this a lot, I think it's with Anna, there are things in my life, like in my twenties, when I met my husband, who's a totally nice guy. And my friend was still struggling. I didn't want to talk about my husband because I felt like I shouldn't talk about a relationship that I was happy about because 
it might hurt someone else. Same when I was, I had a relatively easy time getting pregnant. I lost lots of pregnancies, Mm -hmm. but I had other friends who getting pregnant, being pregnant wasn't going to be an option. And I knew how excruciating it was. And so it was hard to know how much of myself could be present in -hmm. those friendships. And I really appreciated you have two relationships in your books, one with Anna and one with Callie that I felt like the one with Anna and you can describe it a little bit, but there's some competition in there. That's, that's the word I think yeah. I would describe, right? Like there's some, yes. some feeling of similarity between the two of you, which is great when you're working on a shared project and less great because, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's great when you guys are working individually, because at least it feels as though she's having an easier time than you are. And it, it's yes. really peaceful. Yeah. I appreciate the memes that go around, like women supporting women, rah, rah, rah. I'm, I am a hundred percent enriched every time I support another woman in whatever she's doing, even if it's a thing I want really, really bad for myself that has eluded me, but underneath the hood for me, how do I get there? Getting there has been really painful because what are we supposed, those of us who are competitive or grew up with a scarcity mindset or had a sister who seemed to, you know, usurp us from early days. Yeah. So if we've, if we've had, if we have the certain kind of injury, Callie and I used to talk about our injuries. Like I have this injury and how am I supposed to, what, What's the meme that tells me, what do I do with my competition when Anna, a close friend of mine who I genuinely love, seems to be besting me in every category that exists? That's really challenging emotionally. And I would love to be a person who's just like, I root for other women. All boats rise. Okay. But underneath those cliches, I got work to do. And I wanted to write a book about that work and about the sometimes unpleasantness and some of the gore, (laughs) you know, like I, in my first book, I wrote all about the disastrous dating and unfulfilling relationships I forced myself into. And my female relationships have been every bit as complex. We're not physical. We're not intimate. We're not sexual, but they are complex and long-term and tangled and glorious. They're everything. And they, they just deserve their own book. Yeah. Well, and, and much like your first book, I mean, you don't spare yourself in this book. Like you are not trying to make it. And so that was, that was the part that I really wanted to thank you for. There's a chapter, you know, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't read it, but there's a chapter where you're like, and then I ghosted her. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I was like, thank you because the best version of myself is who I want to be. And there are times where like, that is too exhausting and maybe actually (laughs) not going to get me the outcome that I need, which is to be away from this for a yeah. bit. And so I just, you also talk about the complexity of being a human and all of your own needs. And, and one thing that kept running through my head and it, some of it with Meredith also, because she has a personality that denies herself things. Yeah. But I was thinking about like, God, I wonder what this would be like if there was a male version of this book. Yes. Because the competition, at least, um, or the way in which you can feel envy is it has this difference to it when it's feminine, right? Like there's a there's yeah. an idea that we are no longer women or good women or doing the the all but you know, we're supporting each other. When we say, I was really fucking jealous and imagine if we did, like, that's what I kept thinking about. I wonder if, if the ethos for women was just jealousy and competition, like my 13 year old son regularly runs down the street with his friends to see who's faster. That's how they they come home. It's like, maybe I'm going to beat you today. I'm just going to like, see who's faster. And I just feel like as somebody out in the world, nobody taught me how to talk about that. And so what often happens is I lie a little bit about my ambitions, even though I am pretty ambitious and I love talking to other women who are ambitious. So I lie a little bit. I'm like, oh, well, I don't really care. It's going to be fine. And so then I'm like, I'm already, how could you possibly be a good friend to me if I won't even show you the truth of myself? 
Exactly. That's exactly my point as well. This is the other thing that I have found very curious. There are some women who have ignite this in me, who, who, and it's, even if I controlled for all other variables, some women, I, I mean, to use the phrase trigger me and I get the competition thing and I can't figure out exactly why there's something about the chemistry between us. I've tried to find out, is it birth order? Both Anna and I were middle children. Callie was a second born. Oh no, Callie was a firstborn. So I, that ruins all my theories. I don't know why some people I can watch them get gifts from the universe and I'm, I am so truly and thoroughly thrilled and happy to see good things come to good people. And there's other people when their goodness comes, I have to really breathe <laughs> and like remind myself it's not about me and I have to do a lot of work. I don't know why that is. And I wanted to really explore that because it's painful. I want to have the ease of joy for other people and that generosity of spirit and I just get snagged up sometimes and sometimes it's the closer the friend and sometimes it just points me towards my own longing right if yeah. someone gets something that I want but that I don't yet have it's like oh, okay I still really want that so what do I need to do but sometimes it's just so it's so visceral that I can't even be intellectual about it for like some period of time I've definitely had those experiences some recently where it, you know, maybe it took me a month to just mm -hmm. for the heat, for the heat of the thing to let it go. Um, and in the, in the case of what I'm thinking about, like it had, the other person didn't even know that they didn't, you know, right. they, they weren't, we weren't competing for something together. They didn't even know that the thing that they were doing was, you know, something about me, at least at this point in my life, I'm more clear about what I want. I want, I used to pretend I didn't want anything because that was the yeah. system I came from. Right. And so when people would be like, what do you want for dinner? That seems like an innocuous question, but I genuinely wouldn't know the answer. I would have this complicated, like, how much does it cost? How much time do we have? What do you want? You know, like, who are we meeting afterwards? Where are we going to be? <laughs> there was no belief that I could just answer. I want Chinese food, even if that was going to be inconvenient. And I've right. worked on those pieces but the, what do I want? Doesn't always come readily to me. So sometimes what I experience and that you have some of this in the book is like, you hear about somebody else's thing. In some cases it's Anna yeah, and you're in this wild heat of envy or longing or jealousy or whatever it is, but it wasn't as clear until you're kind of in it. Like, oh my God, this is a problem for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there is something that's so hard about owning desire. I have found it a huge challenge and I see it in my close female friends. Just yesterday, I had a friend, a very close friend of mine called me and she read an early copy of the book and she read an electronic copy. You know, since then I've had galleys, which is early copies. And now I've got the final, I've had a box of final books for in my house for like a month now. And she knows, she called me and she's like, I feel really hurt. You gave this book to other friends. Why didn't you send it to me? And I said, well, I sent it to those other friends because they said, I want one of those and they asked for it. So I sent it. And she was like, well, don't you know, I don't, you know, I want it. And I was like, but you didn't say that. And she said it was hard for her. It was hard for her to own. She wanted it. It was hard for me to own that. I wanted her to have it. And so as a consequence, we both ended up feeling wounded by the other, and it would have been easily solved if I would have said, I want you to have this. This is important to me. But I was embarrassed. Like, here's my book. Let me right. voice it on you. And she didn't want to like, I don't know. She didn't want to have to, she didn't want to feel demanding. So there's this, like, that was a little bit of gum and yeah. a very solid relationship. But I think that plays out in big and small ways because I don't know if it's socialization or what, but like owning desire and or swallowing desire in a friendship is a, is kind of a path to miscommunication and resentment and not getting our needs met. Yeah. Well, and thinking about like, how do we demonstrate to someone that they're important to us? And a yeah. lot of how we do that is how we want it. My best friend's turning 50 in a couple of days and pretty much every day I say to my husband, like, maybe I could do this for her. 
And he's like, you can't do anything for her without asking. If she does not co-sign, it is not for her. It is for you. Oh, good. Yeah, he tells me the truth. I mean, they're good friends and they've known, you know, we've all been together a long time, but my best friend's been my best friend since I was 11. And what she's much more introverted and she doesn't want a party on a a tropical island that Jennifer loves (laughs) to. Like, that's not at all what she wants. She might want a chef's table at a restaurant that she can walk to. Um, but I've also noticed that when you have, when you're not getting your own needs met, you can sometimes put them in the friendship. And I feel like there's this gorgeous scene with you and Meredith when she's really ill and she's, Mm -hmm. and there's, and there's so much love. I mean, I cried so hard so many times in this book. Um, but you know, she asks you to come. And not other people. It's got a lot of people that she's close to and she asks you to come. And to me, it felt like someone just tapped me to win the Academy Award. That's yeah. what I always want. I always want to be the one friend who is picked to be the yes. most special. And I will sometimes pay to get there. You know what I mean? I'll give you more than I want to give you because I'm really hoping to be in your thank you speech. <laughs> Yes, I definitely have the, I call it my valedictorian syndrome. I want to be the first, the first for all the things. And that gets real tricky when someone's really sick and they're not ranking things. I mean, it wasn't so crash that I was jockeying for position, but there were moments when it felt like, oh, I'm going to be upset if other people are closer to Meredith and they're giving me news about her instead of getting it straight from her. And in the end, I did hear from my great and dear friend of me, Anna was the one who called to tell me that Meredith had passed away. And by then I had, thank God, I had done enough work that I just felt connected and was glad that someone who loved Meredith as much as Anna did and as much as I do gave me the news. And when I was really in my, really my feelings were about losing my friend and all that bullshit about competition and who's first and who got the news, all of that was just medication for we're losing her and there's no replacing Meredith and no amount of shenanigans among the rest of us living is gonna fix it, is going to lessen the grief. It's just, it is what it is and it's big and awful. I talk about this when my dad was dying, which was sort of a year long process of small cell cancer. I think I was probably a terrible friend during that time because I was self-centered, not selfish. I wasn't taking things from other people, but I was like self-centered in this way that I just sort of didn't care if, you know, you were upset that I didn't come to your son's birthday party. I gave myself a lot of passes that I'm not sure other people gave me, but when people would ask me about it, I'm like, it's kind of like the realest thing that's ever happened in my life. So a lot of other stuff just kind of fell away. A lot of the, some of what you're talking about that really is about my relationship with myself, maybe, and less that they got mixed up and pulled up. Um, It was a really weirdly simple time. And it sounds perverse to say that, but it was like, I mostly just sat with my dad. We didn't have big talks and talk it all out and all that. I mostly just was like, this man deserves to have company and feel loved. And I deserve to love him. And that was kind of the whole show. So there is this odd thing about death that like clears away some of the cobwebs. I'm curious about, because you do write about real people, has the book done anything in those spaces? I know you sent it to people who are in it. Has it stirred up trouble? Has it given more converse, given you more space for conversation? Has it, you know, are there now more people who aren't talking to you? Um, that's such a good question. It's very complicated to be a memoirist, as all memoirists know, or even if you write personal essay. Um, you know, I had to do a lot of work around the people who are in the book. And but when I first start a writing project, I give myself permission to write whatever I need to write, just get it on the page, because obviously making it very clear to myself, there's a difference between writing and publishing. Those are two different things. Well, as this moved along the track to publication, I knew I had Meredith's permission. She's obviously not with us anymore, but we had talked about my writing before. So I did feel this great sense of blessing and permission from her, which was helpful. But there's a lot of other people in this book. And 
Um, in some ways, it has been a road back in my relationship with Callie. Mm-hmm. We've had, you know, it it called the conversation, right? It called the question. And I she knew I was writing about her and our really I was writing about our relationship. And she's been nothing but supportive. And I've had the incredible experience of just being being freely gifted generosity and complete support from her which is she doesn't have to do that people people obstruct or try to obstruct writers all the time and I haven't encountered any of that and I feel much closer to Anna I talked to Anna this morning and we were laughing about nothing nothing in the past both of us had hard phone calls we had to make like to parents of our kids friends you know oh yeah yeah. like I don't want to do it it was just like there's this intimacy there so the people who are in the book with whom I had a whole process I would say that's a real, that, that solidified some things that were floating between us where it feels trickier right now. And this might be in my imagination, but people who aren't in the book, like I just wrote a book called BFF and I'm imagining what it feels like to be a friend of mine and not be in the book. What is, yeah. what that, oh, that's probably hard that I think there's some silences and it's just the awkwardness. Like I have a really weird job that I write books about my life. And there's people in my life. And I have had one friend com- confront me about that. She was like, let me just, let me understand this. <laughs> you wrote a book about called BFF. Am I in it? And she's not. And I told her, I was like, you should probably be glad you're not in it. It means we haven't had like a years long struggle. And I don't know how that feels to hear that as my friend. It, I don't know. And so I'm anticipating people having feelings and I hope that I just hold hold it loosely listen carefully and lovingly and and let people have whatever whatever reaction to the work let them have it and not run away because it's scary because that's obviously my mo but I'm in recovery for that so it's very tricky I won't lie it's I thought after group nothing's going to be harder than writing about people in group therapy and then I was like whoops well this is right up there. So maybe it's just always hard, especially most memoirists I know and who I've talked to, we want to do right by the people in our lives. Of course we have ethics and people deserve privacy. And I really disguised everyone. And it's also super weird and uncomfortable. And (laughs) I also have to honor the stories that I feel compelled to tell as long as I have as long as I don't tell other people's stories and keep keep the focus on myself and disguise people so they have their privacy, but there's still a lot of room in there for a lot of discomfort. Yeah. Sometimes when when I'm in an audience and they're like, and now an audience, like at the Kennedy Center, and they're like, and now this person doesn't know they're gonna get called to the stage. I'm like, oh my God, I hope it's me, which is insane. <laughs> But the kind of longing as a middle child who was not the most achieving and was on the female side and the men were sort of more important, I am often really stunned to discover how great my need is to be told and validated that I matter to people. And yet I can't stand when people want that same thing for me. It makes me crazy where I'm like, I already told you that I love you. You are in my top three. How can you not feel that from me? And I just know it's two sides of the same coin. And I know both, you know, from writing a memoir and reading memoirs that I'm included in, that it's a, that it's a shit show, that there's no, you can't cut. It's like, I don't know, like, like a court case where you can't cover all the angles and you can just hope that there's, you know, there's grace for people in here, but there is, you know, it made me think a lot about how I felt about sex in the city. One of the things I love about Sex in the City is that they show the truth of female friendship in a lot of ways. Not about like how much you can spend on shoes and what clothes people actually wear, yeah. or like what their sex life looks like. But, you know, those women get mad at each other and they judge each other and they go away yes. and they come back together. Even though I really didn't love this last season of Sex in the City, the new one, the fact that, that she's estranged from Samantha to me feels really genuine. I agree. Like a real truth. And I feel like in your book, you give us so many pieces that are like, people don't say this out loud, but this is the truth. Oh, people don't say this out loud, but this is the truth. I imagine if we pulled in a hundred people, maybe, I don't know about men, but if we pulled in a hundred women, 
and said, is there a friend that you feel regretful about how you behaved? Is there, is there a friendship that still twists for you? Is there something that's uncomfortable? Um, we're going to get a lot of names. We're just going to get yeah. a lot of, because not just because we haven't been taught how to be in those spaces. Cause I, I would argue I have been taught how to be in those spaces, but because they're incredibly hard spaces to be in and add all the things, the kids and the jobs and the people wanting to be important and not being able to feel important or people wanting to feel safe or people wanting to feel connected or people. It's really, really tricky in like a million different ways. It's, it is tricky. Again, I just feel so grateful that you said that, you know, I think about friendship a lot, just sort of on my own recreationally. And now, you know, I'm talking to people more and more because the book is about to come out. And just this morning, I do morning pages, a la Julia Cameron. And I, I felt this very visceral, physical longing to connect with my law school roommate. And instantly I had these feelings like, or thoughts that were like, oh my God, she's so busy. Oh my God, she's not in the book. You haven't been a good friend. I had all these, all this chatter. And I was like, one thing about this book has taught me to get out of my own way. Yes, if you want an excuse to shut down a bid for connection, shut it down, like fine. But I was like, wait, that's not what I really want. What I really want is to see her. And I asked her, I was like, are you gonna be downtown on Monday? Do you wanna go to lunch? And she's like, yeah, totally. And it was that easy. And now we get to connect. Whereas in the past, I would let the chatter overrule me. And I would just, I'd be so, I'd talk myself into such a shame spiral about how I'd done it wrong for the past year or two years. Then it, then another year would go by. And now I'm, I'm just not willing to do that. I have the time. I want to see her. I'm going to be right by her office. It's around her birthday. Like do it. And that is, that feels different to me. That's different action because of what I learned when Meredith and I, that I tried to write down in the book to just get out of our own way, get out of the way, Christy, and your chatterbox, like go have lunch. I love that story. And I, to me, that feels like, um, I don't know. It feels like the definition of the work, which is like, you still feel all the feelings. You just yeah. push your way through it. Right. Like Brene Brown talks about all the vulnerability and you just stay in the game. Yes. And I, anytime I see that clip, which I swear comes up on my Instagram every day, I'm like, okay, all right, Brene, all right. But it, but it reminds me that like, I do tap out of the game a lot and, and I'm not going to blame myself for that because I think sometimes that might be the right thing for me in that moment. Yeah. But the notion of like, oh, I have all these feelings, but what's more important is I want to see this person or what, it, what would be different. It would be having these feelings and pushing forward anyway one of the things that I think is so beautiful about your relationship with Meredith is how much you guys support each other by just being similar. You're yes. so different, but there's so much normalization. My very best friend, Maya, who I was talking about before, sometimes I just text her and I'm like, I suck so hard today. And she'll write back, like, I sucked so hard yesterday. Or she'll say, I do not suck at all today. And I would never have a best friend who sucks. So that can't be possible. It will be one or the Oh, other. I love this. We don't even get, we don't have time to get into the details. She runs a big, a big thing. And she's a single mom. And like, I mean, we do mostly talk every day. That happened during COVID, which I love. And I think I would have told you before wasn't possible. But our yes. needs for each other got higher. And for me, after my mom died, because I was so ill, I had such strong PTSD, which is, which was a little bit like suddenly being very myopic. Like I couldn't see past my hands. A lot of the address books around friendship sort of shifted and changed some for the, some for the better, some for the good, but thinking about when I was like, not so ill and coming back into friendship, like what, what do I want? inside this friendship. And I yeah. feel like your book is constantly encouraging us to ask that question. Like, yeah, sure. We're all supposed to have friends, but like, what do you want? You know, I think about women that I see for some reason, Jen Hatmaker, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's popping into my mind. Like she has a group of girlfriends. There's like 12 yes. of them and they all wear the same sweater and they go on these trips. And I look at that and I'm like, why don't I have a group of 12 girlfriends? Why don't we all wear the same sweatshirts? And why don't all of our husbands like each other? And that's never going to be a part I of it. I know. Right? That's not how I, that's not 
how I do it, but I do spend a little bit of time sometimes longing for that. Totally. Totally. It just, the, the pandemic was such an interesting time and people ask me all the time, you know, it was great for some of my relationships. Like I reconnected with my high school friends and we still talk every Sunday. And like you, I would have said, I don't have an hour every Sunday to sit on the zoom with these people I knew when I was 15. Yes, I do actually three years counting. So, okay. That's amazing. And, and on the other hand, there were other friendships that didn't quite fare so well because of the stress of the pandemic and the distance did not, we weren't in a place where the distance could serve us and that the lack of um, access to gathering was real hard and stressful. So I think that's, it's just hard to, it's hard to know what life is going to throw at me and which relationships are going to kind of wobble and which ones are going to topple and which ones are just going to get stronger. So what I feel grateful for is my, my, my willingness to put it on the front burner next to parenthood, next to marriage, next to writer Christy. I want to be a friend in the world and I want it to not be something that goes to the back burner every time the other hats I wear are thrown into some kind of crisis or, or even short of a crisis, just a busy time, you know, like I'm, I'm really interested in growing the muscle of making time for friendships of all different kinds. You have this one part in the book, which is so beautiful, where you're talking to some friends who I think they fell into the background on account of an, a, a relationship. It was from like a younger time and you were really enmeshed in this other relationship. And, you know, it's a thing that women say about women is like, oh, well, she got a boyfriend or they got married and I never saw them again. And that sort of, um, and I think sometimes we look at that as like, well, they're a bad friend instead of, I don't know, the way I might overwork it's not because I want to do work. It's because I don't know how to balance. I don't know how to say no to this. I'm still developing my capacity to, to disappoint my boss or I'm yeah. still, but, but what I love about that is that those friends are more interested in what you have to offer than the fact that they were hurt. And that all, totally. which is, which is stunning, right? Like when we leave a relationship, whatever it is, like my boyfriend from high school, I've left that moment in that moment, even though it's decades ago. And the likelihood is if I were to show up to see that person now, it would include all kinds of other things, probably gratitude that he's gone on to have a good life, not yeah. just where we left each other. And I just think you do a really beautiful job of like, this is my internal story. And then it's when it's re reality tested, it's not that that doesn't exist. It's that the weight on it isn't yeah. it's, your friends aren't like, no, that never happened. What are you talking about? Your friends say to you like, yeah, it's okay though. Like that happens. For after a 30 year breach, when right. I was busy chasing a lot of alcoholic men to have friends just say, well, we're glad you're here now. Like what, what a wonderful, warm welcome. And I also, I really have understood a lot of this. Like when I started looking at my relationship with men and all the addicts I was dating, like, hmm, wonder what this is all about. What's the common denominator? And it was very clear that I had to work through some family addiction and my own addiction to understand what it was going to take for me to have a healthy relationship. And I really, for years, thought that was just about my relationship with men. And I didn't understand that that addiction had also really touched me around my relationships with women. Of course it did. Like, it seems like a silly thing to not know, but I kind of really didn't know that. And I'm just grateful that I didn't have to, I mean, I think I took me till like late thirties to kind of get straightened out here, early forties, but that's better than never. You know, I missed 30 years with my high school friends, but I'm glad it wasn't 35. I'm glad it wasn't 40 because I'm not letting go now when you just said that, what it was making me think of is the men that I work with who, you know, I think for women, there's a whole cohort inside society. That's like, find a relationship. And then you are fully realized as a woman, get someone to pick. And then no one has to worry about you anymore. You have achieved your, and, and most men that I know don't see getting married as like a life achievement in the same way or partnering off in the same way. And I no. don't know that as many of them are anxious about it in the same way, but 
I work with guys that are like it turning 50 who have been chasing their careers mm. and have not said yes to the golf trip in, in 10 years and have some of what we're talking about, which is like, am I still invited? Would I still be welcome? Are they, was there rejection? So so even as we're talking about it, like I do think there's probably a conversation. I don't know that it would be the same, but it is, you know, holding ourselves accountable for the things that we haven't kept in our lives that probably did matter to us, that probably are important to us is kind of an interesting concept. And I love the way that you're talking about, because I also reconnected with a whole bunch of high school friends. We started a book club we're creating a new kind of connection. And I feel grateful to that. I do wonder sometimes like, you know, the energy that other people have caused me, I must cause that to someone. I must be the thing that makes it hard for other people in places. And yeah. the, right. And the way in which you write about it in the book, you go to therapy with one of your friends. I just think like, God, that's a gift. Like, even if yep. you guys don't come up come out the other side, deciding that you make sense for each other anymore. Like yeah. God, such a freaking gift is to see yeah. people working on friendship and letting things go, but also addressing things like it's super complex. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like that's, that's exactly my experience. And also just the ways in which it's okay to make mistakes in friendships. This makes me laugh. I had, um, I was with a group of writers who had read the book and we were talking about it. And one of them said, one of them runs an advice column about friendship. And oh she God. has been running this advice column for like since 2015. So she's gotten a lot of letters and she gets tons and tons of letters from people who've been ghosted by their friends. Yeah. And she said, I've never gotten a letter from the ghost. And I find that shocking. Like, all of us can't be victims of the ghost. Some of us are ghosts. Like I, I felt like I have certainly been a victim. I've been ghosted before, but it felt much more important for me to write about what was going on in my relationship with Callie, lack of skill, stress, yeah. and been pent up resentments. And then, which, you know, inevitably led to my ghosting because of my lack of skill. I don't believe I would do that again. Um, certainly not with Callie, hopefully nowhere and it it truly was the the best that i could do it was the yeah. best that i could do but i just find it interesting that more people who have been on the i drop the rope side yeah, of things no the ghosters like i can't be the only one who's ever done this well and again if you think about ghosting not as which is a conversation i have with people in dating all the time which is like listen i think that's the best that person could do of yeah. course you deserved a conversation of course you did but also that conversation isn't always kinder. I've had people bring their person in and that person has said to them, I never loved you the way yeah. I made you feel like I did. Like that, that's not kinder actually necessarily yeah. than, than just saying, I'm not going to pick up your phone anymore. Not sure, but, but it feels complicated and I think about this in grief a lot. One of the things that was the trickiest for me after my mom died was people who were hurt. It was a long time before I could come back to friendships. And I had mostly people who were able to say that to me with generosity, but this hurt, I, you used to be this for me and, or we used to do this together. I used to be able to rely on you this way. And I understand that you weren't well, and I understand that you were grieving, but it still sucked for me. And then yeah. I had a couple of people that were like, you did your grief wrong. You are sick. You are the problem and you are, you know, causing pain everywhere you're going. And for those people, I did ghost them. I, and I get very, very angry. So I have a very strong, angry part. So I didn't trust that I wouldn't burn their house down and then they're <laughs> with it because I can do that. But I do, what one thing that I think about a lot is that there are all these periods of times in our lives where like we leave college and people who we used to be close with, it worked because we went to the dining hall together or we had the same yep. classes. So it, you know, or like I had a work friend and 
we used to go to the gym together, but like when he moved back to Boston, we didn't talk on the phone. Like I still think of him with so much love and I think of him as a friend, but I'm lucky if I see him once a year. So we don't have the same kind of friendship or closeness, but I don't know that that gets talked about a lot, that there are these natural transitions in your life that are good and progressive and, and they shift your friendships. You have to kind of grieve. Yeah. Right. And we don't necessarily talk about that kind of as natural development either. Not, it's not a fault of anyone, but it is also painful, right? Like there is grief involved. And what we do instead is we say like, no, we'll visit and we'll call and whatever. And again, what your book demonstrates and certainly with Meredith is we can actually honor the, the beauty of this friendship and grieve the fact that it's not going to stay this way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much of grief is like both and right. Like I'm grieving and I still have to keep going and I have to find somebody who not to replace Meredith, but somebody to hold me while I'm missing her and just making space for new relationships. When one of them is no longer available in the same form that it was those that's always, that always involves loss. I left my job in 20, the same job I had for like seven years in 2021 to write full time, which is the dream of a lifetime. But I also left behind seven very close colleagues and I miss them. And we do get together. It is not the same. None of us pretend it's the same, but at the same time, I can feel the intimacy between them. They still have the day to day. Nobody's doing anything wrong. They weren't supposed to quit their jobs because I did, but I definitely feel that like, oh, it's like, I want to have all the lives yeah. and I can't, I can't <laughs> be a full-time writer or a full-time lawyer. <laughs> That's right. The sliding that doesn't work. Anything. Yeah. I know I need to let you go. I wanted to say this to you because I thought about it so many times. I actually went to go get pictures. My grandmother, her whole life. So when I think of her as my grandmother, she was probably like 58. You know what I mean? Like right. not so much older than me, but that's. Um, that's where I think of her and her best friend. So my grandmother's name was Mary and her best friend's name was Shamra. I know they were, it's going to make me cry. They were both single women, very religious. And they did all these like bus tours across Italy or macrame lampshade classes. And I realized recently that my grandmother grieved her friend my entire life. That yeah. every time she told me a story about Shamra that I just took in as like some lady I'm never going to meet, my grandmother, who was much more on the quiet side, was telling me about a friend who helped her magnify her curiosity and her adventure. And she didn't, I don't think, ever replace her. I was thinking, you know, I don't know very many women who have lost a dear friend the way that you have. And I'm just yeah. curious. It wasn't that long ago. How, what does that feel like in these days, particularly that you've created this beautiful thing, you know, in tribute and memory to her? Yeah. What what feels really special is that I get to have all these conversations with the world about her. So that makes her feel very close and probably like once a day or, you know, I'll get off this podcast. I'll have this pang like, ah, oh, I wish I could. I wish I could tell her. I wish she could see all this. She, as you pointed out, one feature of her personality was like pretty much self-denial. So for her to know the way that people are responding to her and have her, it's a pseudonym, but they have her name and her spirit on their lips and in their minds and in their hearts as they're reading the book. That part feels so awesome. And that's one thing that you could do. And, and also just, I've been the recipient of other people's stories of the people that they've lost and through various means, like losing a friendship is, is a different thing. It's different than you know, a mom feels different than a child, of course, and so does a friend. So hearing other people is this great comfort and connection. And I feel really lucky people are talking to me about their lost friends. Yeah. I love that image. I can see it in my mind, even though I don't know that street corner of you two being (laughs) like, this is totally ridiculous. The, my memoir is written about my PTSD after my mom died. And people often say, even my publisher was like, you're going to dedicate this to your mom. And I'm like, listen, you didn't know my mom. 
she would have not spoken to me for two years if I wrote a book about her. Like she was wildly private. The only way this book is getting published or written or even conceived is that she's not here to stop it. I am writing a novel right now that was the base of a conversation on the last trip that I took with my mom. We stayed at this little inn and we invented this sort of murder she wrote story about a plot line. That's not really where the novel goes, but that little plot line is included. And it does feel like that. I have this imagination of handing her this book and being like, totally, no, read it. Look what's in there. I did that out of you know, honoring us and what we created as a relationship together. So yes, absolutely write a book about your lost loved one if writing is the thing. But I also just love the idea of keeping their lips, you know, keeping their names on our lips and and getting to talk about them because that it does though, it does exactly the thing that you're saying. And I'm sure it will to me when I get off this podcast, I'll have the like grief heaviness across my chest in that way that feels not bad in that way that right. feels like a legacy right absolutely like legacy of the love I mean so many people I'm like Christy Tate has a book called BFF coming out that I think you should read I was on the I was on a call with a reporter yesterday who was talking about something and I was like you know there's this new book coming out I can't wait to see what this book does in the world it just it fills a void and it starts a conversation like nothing else and I am super grateful to have gotten an early copy. And I'm going to say this to you, maybe I'll cut it out of the podcast, but the fact that my name is in those back pages made me cry like a small child. Well, you know what? You're, you're part of the story now, whether you like it or not. Girl, that really meant a lot to me. So that, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for doing this. And thank you for having me in your group and all those things. It's such an honor to be connected to you and your gorgeous work. It's so special. What really I say to people is like, I just read Christy Tate's new book and it really fucked me up. That's really what I actually say. (laughs) That is the highest praise I could ever have. Yeah. Meaning it just, you know, a lot of feelings, a lot of feelings about it, about myself and about the people I'm connected to. And I think that's, that is the highest praise. It's, you know, it's a gorgeous book. I, I hope this next series of weeks for you is more energy inspiring and feels connecting. I hope it makes you feel a light shone on your gorgeous thing. That Thank way. you. Thank you, Megan. I appreciate this conversation, all the work you do for people who are living in and around and inside grief. Thanks for everything. You're the best. Go out, do well, and I'll send you text messages as people are Good. saying things about you and you didn't notice. I'll send them while you're out out beating the pavement and doing your book tour and I'll see you so much please do Bye. bye thank you thank you